Hello everyone and welcome to Rebel Chums. We're continuing our Harry Potter season and this week it is the seventh and penultimate episode of our Harry Potter season, which means it can only be time for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. So, Part 1? Part 1. But there is only one book. Exactly. I guess we all thought that the seventh film would be the last, but alas... It is Earwax. Not. Alas, Earwax, yeah. Alas, it is not. And you get uh, an extra bonus episode of the Rebel Chums discussion because it's a two-part film, which we'll, I want to discuss at that point. Anyway, so, yes, yeah, yeah. G- gathered round the virtual table this week, we have myself, Andy. Oh, and me, Jake. And also uh, me, Rob. It's the, uh, well, I want to say original three, but that excludes no. It's three that of the original four. So, yeah, we're all here to discuss Deathly Hallows part one, which came out nearly ten years ago now, which well, is... 2010. A, yeah, it's a, well, yeah, ten years ago, but at the end of 2010, so that's an appalling fact to me, that, because that seems to have come out fairly recently for me, but yeah. I still so, remember the instant reaction when it was announced that they were going to be doing two films, mm-hmm. and, uh, and now the idea of a film splitting the finale into two, or a TV show splitting the finale into two parts, just kind of seems like a common thing. Oh yeah, but the thing is, I think Harry Potter started the trend for that. Didn't yeah, it? it did start the trend, and I think on in Hollywood balance, anyway, it's actually warranted for this film. I think it's actually a necessary thing to split it into two parts. But like all the films that followed doing that thing, like Hunger Games and Twilight, and I don't know what else, like just basically they did it for the sake of it. They did it to get an extra movie out and rake an extra box office, and it gave two part finales a sort of bad name. But I actually think it's warranted for this film. Yeah, because I feel like, I mean, having seen it a lot over the years, um, I think that if you were to do parts one and two as one film, it would have to be some uncomfortable time of like three and a half, four hours. Yeah, I'm not sure there's it's, much you can cut, really. No, it. I feel like it would just get too long. I mean, it, it really would be pushing the boat out, but because it's a kid's film you're pushing it way out to shore at that rate. So I'm, I definitely prefer the way that they did it. I think that they have a little... We'll talk about it a bit more. Um, I think they have a little bit of uh, trouble from memory. They have a little bit of trouble finding where to end this film. But yeah, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have put the halfway point where they choose to put it. I, w- I would have put it yeah. a bit later on in the book and packed a bit more into this one, if I'm honest. But... Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. But um but you know, from memory, this has always been uh, my second or third favorite of the franchise depending on what mood I'm in. Um I usually flip between this and the Goblet of Fire as my second or third favorite. Obviously Prisoner of Azkaban's my absolute favorite, mm-hmm. but I usually between this and Goblet of Fire for my favorite of the whole the whole lot. Um so, I mean, obviously, I don't know. We have one film left after this. I don't know what that says about my ranking of uh, the last film. You'll have to find out. Well, I'm assuming it's sort of like middle ground. <laughs> Fourth or below, yeah. Yeah, but um, but what about you two? Like, how, I mean, we're saying, like, this film has been out for, like, ten years. Like, what have the last ten years of this film being in your lives, what what, what have they, what's the, what have those years been like? I mean, I remember it really vividly going to see this. I was in, it, it was on a Saturday after my one of my first shifts at my first job where I was uh, working in a toy shop over Christmas, sometimes dressed as an elf. Um, 
and I, I, I very vividly remember going to see this one, and I was really, really excited because even though it was only part one of the ending, it still sort of felt like the ending, really. Um, in that there are some moments of climax in this one, really. Some characters who appear for the last time in this one. So it still felt like a bit of an ending. Um, and at the time, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought I got everything I wanted out of it, mainly because out of all the eight films, with the possible exception of Chamber of Secrets, this is one of the most loyal, accurate to the book, really. They, they, they do cut a few little subplots that I think are probably quite good cuts. They've made the right decisions, but... I think this is actually a really faithful adaptation. I think that's probably why I enjoyed it so much. In retrospect, we'll get into it a bit more, obviously, after after the trailer, but I don't love it as much now, because I think, as a film, it does have some problems. But I've always thought of this one quite highly. Jake, what about you? Uh, yeah, it's fine. I mean, I, I again, I watched this film in the cinema when it came out back in 2010, um, if I remember correctly, there were only six months between this and part two. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was winter twenty ten and then summer twenty eleven. So, you know, they filmed presumably both of them at the same time. They did, and yes. Yeah. Split them up like that, um, and it definitely justifies being in two parts. Um, I mean, you've kind of got to have a hatred of this film because it's responsible for splitting Twilight Breaking Dawn into two parts and prolonging that series longer than it should have been going on for. Um, <laughs> but you know, as a film, it's you know, it's okay. It's like middle of the road for Harry Potter films for me. I suppose mainly because if I think about watching a Harry Potter film, if I'm going to think about watching um, The Deathly Hallows, I'm, I'll probably just skip part one altogether and watch part two. Because as a Harry Potter fan, it's where all of the exciting stuff happens. Um, yeah. uh, in terms of plot, anyway. Like, um, you could argue that this film is better for a, a number of reasons in terms of being a film, but from a Harry Potter fan perspective, obviously, if you're going to choose a Harry Potter film to watch and you want to watch the ending, then you watch the actual ending. You don't watch the first half of the ending, and you know. So I don't. I haven't seen this film that much. I've probably seen it maybe a handful of times, um, and so I didn't really know what to think or how I felt about it when I watched it yesterday because we watched it last night. Um, and at first I enjoyed it, and then, for reasons that I'll get into, I started to get a little bit bored, and it failed to hold my attention a little bit. Maybe that's just because I was sleepy, but also, you know, <laughs> maybe it's a film. The film should conquer that. film should conquer Fil- your film should conquer yeah. sleepiness. Unless yeah. I'm so sleepy that I'm, like, you know, going to close my eyes and drift off. Mm-hmm. And in that case, I can't really blame the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the, like, of course we'll go into it in more detail, but, like... This is probably a middle of the road Harry Potter film for me. Yeah. Um I have um well I have a story about it. Um it also involves um the the, the girlfriend I was with at the time that I saw Half Blood Prince. All your stories um, involve your girlfriend at the time. Not all of them. Just, but... I'm not saying it's the same girlfriend at the time, but it's sort of become a running theme of Rebel Chums. It's like it's like, which was the style at the time? <laughs> is this well, a Scottish know, girlfriend? Yes, yes okay. it is. Um, and we went to see it. Um, I was actually visiting her at her house this time. So um, we went we went into Glasgow to see it. Tallest cinema in either Europe or the world. Uh, the Sunny World in Glasgow is still there. Um, last film I saw there was Wonder Woman in 2017. I went up with a couple of friends and we saw the Wonder Woman film, which was all right. Pedantic uh, point here. Tallest or highest? Was uh, it actually a massive building, or was it just on a big hill? No, it's a, a massive building, so it is the tallest. 
Is and it's just a cinema, or it's a cinema in a tall building complex? It's a cinema in a tall building complex. Well, There's then, like... is the cinema the tallest cinema, or is the cinema just situated in a very tall building? It's, well, it's like 20 screens spread across, like, eight floors. Oh, okay. I mean, I'm, I'm happy then. to take his yeah. word on this. I, I, would... I don't think we need to go get a tape measure and head up there, you know. Uh, no, that wouldn't be a good idea, because you would be there all day. But, um... Basically, I went to see it with her, and we were in a packed cinema, like a really, really packed cinema. It was, I think I went up for her birthday, so it hadn't been out long, or maybe it was just before Christmas, Um, and it was in a really, really busy cinema, and as I was leaving, I was the only person not crying. Like, I was looking around at everybody going, am I wired in the wrong way? Why am I not upset, more upset about this? But... We'll, we'll get more into why I wasn't upset um, at the time. Uh, everybody was quite traumatised by the unfortunate event that happens at the end of this film. Yeah. And I am You can't say what happens. I mean, it. I think people are factors. That's true. Spoilers. That's true. Um, I am not traumatised by Dobby's death. It didn't really work on me at the time. I came to appreciate it a little bit around sort of like three or four years ago. But then every time I watch it, I think more and more about it, why they did it what it really achieves, what it really accomplishes emotionally, and I just... It's one of the bits of this film I don't like. Um, See, I agree with you, and, like, the way that the film does it isn't great, and, again, like many things, I feel like it's better in the books, Um, and the way the film achieves this, again, for a myriad of reasons, which we shall cover as we go further through this film, um, it's not great, it's not done very well, but... At the time when I watched this film, I didn't really care about how films are made, and because I was a big Harry Potter fan, no, I didn't. I was still either. very sad. Um, chances are, Rob, that everyone else was crying because you were probably the only person in the room who hadn't read the Harry Potter books. I <laughs> know oh, I had. I had read them. Oh, I, right, I, okay. I, I, I read the final book by myself. Um, oh. But yeah, I, I'll get into it a little bit more. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. Should we hit the trailer yeah. before we dig in properly? Oh, of course. Yeah, we'll, I forgot about that. We'll yeah, the trailer. we're getting carried away. So let's. Let's hop to it. These are dark times, there is no denying. Tell me where he is. Our world has faced no greater threat than it does today. But you can't fight this war on your own, Mr. Porter. the ministry. You have nothing to fear if you have nothing to hide. The longer we stay here, the stronger he gets. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter. Let's get off the streets, get somewhere safe. Let's say we get undercover before someone murders him. That way they won't know which Harry Potter is the real one. They are coming. Nobody else is going to die. Not for me. We have to do something. You think I don't know how this feels? You don't know how it feels. Your parents are dead. You have no family. Who's after you, Mr. Potter? Tell me where he is. 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 Tell me where he
So, we're back. I feel probably the best way to start with this, because I think we might all vaguely agree, is is sort of overall thoughts, like what your overall kind of criticisms are and what your overall kind of points of strength are. Anyone want to go first on that? Um, well, I feel like from what you said, I'm going to have the most positive reading of it, so I could go last. Okay, well, I'll go, I'll go <laughs> first then. In that, this to me is... Well, it's literally a game of two halves because it's a part one and part two, but even in itself, I think it's a game of two halves. I think the reason why this film justifies being part one of two and why this needed to be two movies is that for the first hour or so, I really don't think there's anything I would want to cut from this. I think all the stuff with the escape from Privet Drive and then the wedding and going to the ministry and catching up with Creature and Dobby and all of that, I think... That's great. That's really great material. Which and I it goes by fast. And it goes by really fast. It's really well paced. It's it's a really great hour of Harry Potter. From the moment they start camping, which I know this film is always defined as the one where they go camping, which doesn't actually happen until over halfway through the film. But it has to be said, as soon as they start camping, for me, it stops the movie dead. And I feel like there is a lot there that I would be happy to lose. Yeah. And it's, it's in this awkward spot for me, this film, where it, it would be too long to fit into one film but there's not quite enough material as it's structured to make two films I completely agree Andy said something when we were watching this film last night he said it got to the camping sequence and Andy said oh we're over an hour of uh, an hour through this film we're like almost halfway through and they've only just started camping but everyone always says this one's a, a film that's all about camping and I get that it's not a film that's all about camping because a lot of other stuff happens but when they do start camping by god it drags on so yeah, it feels it, a screeching it, it feels like um, like it is a film that's all about them camping because the camping section, although technically not as long as the rest of the film, feels so much longer than the rest of the film, um, which is a shame because the thing that I'd, were you done giving your general opinion? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. People? No, the the thing that I like about this film, particularly in the first hour, is it's very slow, deliberate pace without being too slow. Like stuff happens in this film, but also. Again, particularly in the first hour, and even through the rest of the film, to be fair, characters are given a lot more room to breathe, interact with each other, have conversations. Um, our favourite characters, like Luna, who isn't even on screen that much, has like meaningful interactions that feel like she has a bigger presence in the film than she actually does. Because the script is really well, is quite well written for this film, um, and the relationships the characters are built just really well together, and they have nice moments that I think are missing from David Yates's. Um, earlier Harry Potter films, particularly Half-Blood Prince, which has lots of action happen, but it doesn't feel like anything actually happens because the characters barely interact. Um, whereas this takes a different approach and is much slower and more deliberate, which is really good in the first hour, where there's also other stuff going on and you kept hooked. But then when 
the camping starts and the rest of the action sort of slows down quite dramatically and all you're left is with the three main characters essentially interacting with each other it becomes less interesting and the character interaction becomes less of a way to pull you in and is when it, when it's an addition when it's something that is added onto a very fast very um coherent plot that makes that is fun to watch it really heightens it but when it's the only thing that's happening in the film not yeah. so much it it just makes the film feel slow and in the first hour it feels slow but it feels deliberately slow and well paced for the sake of character interaction and then in the second half of the film it just feels slow i would i mean i completely agree with jay clearly and i would i would just have two caveats to it two points which is one i actually feel like the, in that respect the book has the same problem and i think that there is general agreement about this as well that the camping sequence in the book is also a bit of a pacing problem for the book um and I think this film in general inherits some of the problems of the book. The other point I would say is that I do think part of the issue is that I don't think that the three main actors are actually good enough no. to, to carry an hour of, of the movie all on their own. I think they're decent enough. And don't forget, you know, that throughout this whole six films so far, they've been constantly surrounded by absolute stalwart actors. And they when are they're the on their own. Of this film. Yeah, and they are in the first half of this film. And when they're on their own, I think their weaknesses as actors do slightly show. Um, so, yeah. Rob, what do you think? Uh, well, I just want to say <laughs> that I was right about um, the Glasgow Cineworld being the tallest uh, in the As world. if. I bet you didn't even listen to what we just said and you just I Googled did. No, a bit. No, I did. I was listening to all of it, but I did want to drop this in before we got too far and I forgot about it. I always believed you, Rob. Just going to say, I always believed you. It was Jake who questioned you. I've just got a critical mind. I can't help that. At over 60 metres high, and with an entry in the Guinness Book of Records, uh, Cineworld Glasgow is the world's tallest cinema. Well, that's great. Congratulations, Cineworld. Well done, Cineworld Glasgow. Uh, MVP of this podcast. I saw this film. Um, But no, um, I basically disagree with you both. Um, it's really funny because my favourite parts of the film are everything that you don't like and my least favourite parts of the film are everything that you seem to really enjoy. Oh, so this wow. will be fun. Okay. Um, <laughs> but um, just just kind of to do the whole sum up at the start of the essay before I sum up at the end of the essay um, and all the notes are in the middle. Um, I always remembered this being my second favourite of the saga and it still is. Um, I love the fact that its structure is completely different to every other film in the series up to this point and I love what it does with it um, the fact that it's like a road movie come character study it's like a refreshing change of pace after six years of what had become a fairly repetitive structure you know like there's only so many times you can do pre-Hogwarts first act, mystery is established in the second act, mystery expands in the third act, mystery is dealt with in the final sort of half an hour. Um, It's a slow burner, like I'm going to admit that, it is a slow burner, but I think there's enough sense of urgency and actual plot in this, it makes it more interesting than the Half-Blood Prince, because the Half-Blood Prince was also a slow burner. Yeah, I don't think it takes much more interesting than Half-Blood It was a slow burner in a bit of stasis, the Half-Blood Prince, where... There was a lot of stuff going on with the characters, but there wasn't a lot of stuff going on with the plot. Whereas, I think in this, the plot kind of happens around the characters, which means that you can kind of ignore it a little bit, but still have it in the back of your mind that they're kind of 
heading towards the end. There is a real sense of finality, which gives a sense of urgency sort of by default. Um, which, yeah, okay, that's probably something that comes from the source text that it's adapting, but hey, they still wanted to adapt it, so, you know, fair enough. Um, and it's hard to adapt things, so they deserve credit for that. Um, I think, more than anything, though, why I really like, um, especially everything after they leave the ministry, Ron gets splinched, all of that, um, after that little bit, um, I think this film becomes more about where the characters are at this point in the story psychologically, both in relation to the wider wizarding conflict and also how they are feeling about the dynamics of the group, as, of, of, of a trio, if you will. Because I think one of my things I've actually found as we've done this rewatch is that I have clearly over the years underestimated just how much these films are a film of trios where they are Harry, Ron and Hermione films, you know? Like, it's... I think we were saying that um, we kind of had a little bit of a joke that um, this film, uh, that the films and J.K. Rowling, they sort of seem a bit incapable of allowing the three of them to finish the mystery together. Because, like, Philosopher's Stone, it's Harry on his own. Chamber of Secrets, it's just Harry and Ron. The third film, it's um, just Harry and Hermione. The fourth film, it's Harry and Cedric. Like the the fifth film, it's Harry and Dumbledore. The sixth film, it's Harry and Dumbledore. Whereas with this, it feels like the three of them are all together at the end. I mean, yeah, okay, they don't solve a mystery or anything like that, but that means that you know the structure is a little bit different. Um, Harry is responding to the responsibility of being the chosen one. Um, Ron is responding to how he feels about constantly being the sidekick to the chosen one, and then. Hermione's kind of caught in the middle of it and we're looking at how she feels about being responsible for them both essentially having to be the mother because Harry and Ron are always like squabbling in this film um, and I think this is something that you mentioned to me yesterday Andy when we were having a little bit of a talk about the film is that the fact that it's a road movie and an adventure movie means that we get loads and loads of great scenic location shots instead of just the Hogwarts grounds again yeah. And, it allow, and it allows for a lot of good sequences to take place in locations that we've never seen before and in styles that we've not properly attempted before. For example, um, the Polyjuice Potion sequence at the Ministry of Magic, like that's the longest that we've spent on that set for a, a, you know, a, a portion of a film. Uh, the Invisible Wall sequence with Hermione's perfume in the forest, I really like that. Um, the yeah. quiet... The quiet montage that's set to the radio transmission, you know, where they're walking through, like, all the deserted caravan parks and, like, barren wastelands as Ron slowly turns on Harry and becomes jealous and suspicious. Um, I love... Until they run into Bethilda Bagshot, I absolutely adore everything at Godric's Hollow. My God. Oh, is... God, we couldn't disagree with you more on that. That was... To, to to me, Godric's Hollow was easily the weakest part of the movie. I thought until they get to Bethilda, I think I don't like the stuff with Bethilda Bagshot, but I I love the stuff at the graveyard and with the choir singing in the church, um, that kind of thing. It's just stuff that you would never be able to get in other Harry Potter films. And the last um, two um, that I've written down, the animated Three Brothers tale, is glorious. Yeah, oh, that's I love great. that. That's I think great. everyone loves that. Yeah. Like for these films to jump into animation like that and do it so seamlessly. I mean, yeah, the whole thing is expo exposition, but it's necessary. And then 
my favourite scene in this film, and probably my favourite little scene across the whole series, I will talk about it more later, I adore the chase through the forest. Oh, I'm glad I, you, I was so worried you were going to say a particular scene then that is possibly my least favourite in the whole eight films. I was so worried you were going to say the dancing scene. <laughs> uh, no, no. I mean, I, I, I don't mind the dancing scene, but that's because I've made my own mind up about it and I have ignored what the uh, directors and writers have said about what yeah. the scene really means. <laughs> I try and do that. I try and do that. That's like, the only way I can cope with that scene. <laughs> and, like, I mean, I'm, I will say that, like, any Harry Potter film, there are loads of clumsy moments. Um, a couple of deaths feel a bit cheap. Like, I don't like Hedwig's death. I don't like the way that they kill Mad-Eye off-screen. Um, the romance angles with Harry and Ginny at the beginning and then Ron and Hermione are a little bit awkward. Um, and then once they get to Malfoy Manor, it's a bit chaotic. But no, mm. I, I generally... I love the fact that this is a different kind of Harry Potter film, but still feels very much like part of the saga to me and I remember before I went to see this for the first time I wasn't opposed to it but I was a bit like oh they're only doing it in two parts because they want to make more money and probably true which is probably true but you know they can take my money for this one I mean the only reason they make any of the films is because they want to make money that's just sort of how business works Mm. Yeah, well, they did say they did say they had a, a real serious meeting about doing this with Goblet of Fire uh, at the yes, time, and, but then they did, but then they decided if we do it for Goblet of Fire, we're going to have to do it for all the others, and that would be taking the mick. So they decided to save it until, well, to not do it basically. And when it came out to Deathly Hallows, they read the book and basically thought, well, there's two or three subplots we can cut here. We can cut the Lupin thing. We can cut some of the early scenes. That's basically it. We, the we Lupin can't thing make is one the movie argument, out of this. right? There's Sorry? an argument. There's an argument between Lupin and Harry at the quite, beginning. Quite of a the big, quite book, a big right? subplot where it, yeah. all the stuff with Lupin and Tonks now being married and she's having a baby, um, and Lupin has a bit of a crisis because he's worried he won't be able to be a good dad. So he basically tries to join the trio as the fourth member to help them find the Horcruxes. Ah, um, yeah. And then just in the second part of this story, which would be in part two of the movie, he reunites with Tonks. They make up. Um, he tries to get Tonks to stay at home during the battle, but she doesn't. She joins him, and then they both die. And the story ends with an orphan, just like the first, just like this story started. It's, it ends with an orphan. <laughs> yeah. So it's quite a nice subplot, but they cut that from the film. Uh, to be fair, I'm happy to lose that. That's not a criticism at all. I think, with regards to what you said about you know where they feel like they are as a trio and things like that, I do get that, but I kind of think... For one thing, we've sort of done that before with, with some of it. Like, I think the kind of dynamics of the trio was quite well explored in Goblet of Fire, where Ron didn't like that he was second fiddle to Harry. And yeah, a bit Hermione fiddle. was, I'm not an owl. You know, Hermione was in that kind of mode. And we've sort of seen that before, but I do take your point on that. The other thing is that I just think, after about 15, 20 minutes of it, I'm sort of like, yeah, I've got the gist of this bleakness now. Like, I feel like they've made that point now. This is rock bottom, like... Things couldn't be worse. The world has gone to and shit. You do a very good and they way don't of doing need, that. And I feel like it continues excessively long. Like something I just, just I know this is a random comparison, but you know the beginning of Endgame. I feel like the first fifteen twenty minutes, it's like completely bleak, and then they kind of move on, and it's about how they make it better. Then and it how and, they turn and it and around. The mood yeah. turns quite light for most of the rest of the film. Then they kind of move on because I think you need to. But that's I just think one once film. you well, it is yeah. But once you've made the point, I feel like you need to 
sort of move on then for better or for worse and I think it just becomes grindingly bleak and slows the pace down to almost but a halt. Isn't that sort of a symptom of having a film in two parts because what would traditionally be a three act film where things are really bleak in the second act is not necessarily a three act film or if, if you combine the two, I mean it still has to be done in three acts, you know, you have your heroes going on an adventure, they reach the lowest point of the adventure and then they slowly almost be it and then don't but then do like that sort of traditional structure it, it's still part of the fi- the two films together because that's what that's what the book is the book follows that same structure so when you split the films in half the end of the film and the majority of the first film or part one is always going to be really bleak because yeah. that's, that's the nature of the story in those three acts but it, there needs to be more happening it can't just be people being sad and I feel yeah like, I'm not saying that's an excuse and I feel like a lot of the second half of the film is just the trio being sad yeah I completely agree I'm not saying that's an excuse the film needs to do something to mitigate that and to try and um, I mean it was their choice to do the film as two parts rather than um, a whole so they should have thought more carefully about how each film is going to be structured um, and to try and mitigate some of the the doom feeling and to be fair like i like this film I, i'm not like i'm being relatively negative about it but that's just because i'm relatively negative about everything i enjoy um <laughs> like there are a lot of things i like about this film and the sense of doom and the sense of gloom that they managed to pervade throughout the whole film without making every scene really dark um thanks to david yates for finally learning how to not do that in a film um is like it's really good and um Again, sorry Rob, I'm going to have to disagree with you about the deaths. Like, Hedwig's death feels a bit needless and they move on from it really fast and never mention it again, which is a bit unfortunate and sad. But I kind of like how that works and I like how death is sort of portrayed as just, it just happens and it's a loss and you have to move on because you're in the middle of a big conflict and you can't stop and think and linger about all these people that have died for more than a couple of moments because you're in the middle of, like, again, the lowest point of the film where, like, shit's going wrong and you've got to sort it out. And that realistic portrayal of how death works in war, because that's essentially how these de- these de- what these deaths are in this film, they are deaths that are happening in wartime, is something that adds to that sense of bleakness and doom that I like in the film. And I agree with Andy, it does get excessive towards the end of the film because there isn't a high point. It's just low, low, low. They escape from that thingy, which is a bit of a high, but then, oh no, Dobby's dead, so it's still low. Like, and Voldemort kind of wins. Oh, and Voldemort kind of wins at the end of this film, so, you know, bleak central. But the way that it's done, and the way that it feels, is good. It's good. Again, I wish it hadn't gone on so long, but it, it it's done well, the way that they create that feeling. Um, but the, the issue that I have with, um, like Andy said later on, is that... Um, in terms of the the three character things, sorry, Rob, actually going back to what you were saying rather than just going off on a tangent. Um, yeah, yeah. The whole three character structure that they have at the end of the film. Um, yeah, I like that and I think it works. And like Andy said, it's been done before. Um, but I just, I, I, I don't get as much of a feeling of it as you do purely because I just don't think it's acted that well. Like Andy said before, the, the trio, like... It's it's great seeing it together and it's great seeing doing all this stuff and it's great exploring these characters more in depth. But I just feel like it's hard to explore these characters in depth when the people portraying the characters aren't doing a particularly good job of it. I mean, I don't think they're awful by any stretch. I think they do a competent job and they do a much better job when they're supported by an amazing supporting cast. Cough, Luna, Love Good, Cough, Mrs. Weasley, whatnot. Um, but it's just when it's a, a, them three alone together, it's just... it's. It's just not as good, because they're just not as good actors. Can I just backpedal a moment to 
the point that you just made there about the deaths uh, yeah. and how you like how they happen quite brutally and quite suddenly. I, I really, really like especially what they do with Madai's death happening off screen because mm. one of the kind of defining features of the Harry Potter series is how death is always depicted as being really sudden and really out of nowhere. Yeah. And it, it's not fair. People don't stop to say goodbye when they die. That's that just not the reality. You just yeah. die. When you're at war, it's, it, you don't you don't get your big final heroic moment a lot of the time. And this is you know very much defined by J.K. Rowling losing one of her parents before she started writing the books, which has always coloured everything and how she hates death. And like Voldemort as a character is trying to conquer death. Like that's what the series is all about. And I like that. Yeah, Cedric dies really suddenly. Sirius, not so much in the films, but in the book, dies basically in a heartbeat, and we barely even see it happen. Dumbledore dies really suddenly in a quite lousy kind of way, deliberately. And sometimes you're not even there. You don't even get to see it because that's just it. War is not. Uh, war is hard and, and not just and war, de- death, death in general death is tragic and death is not fair sometimes you don't even get to see someone before they die like Lupin and Tonks in the next film we don't even get to see their deaths and I think that aspect of the, of the films and the books I've always Fred's really death, really enjoyed that, in the book we see Fred's death and we don't in the film but I, I just I really really like that point that like death is not cinematic and it shouldn't be really because that's 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 how you get realism in a film I think is when you depict depict death yeah. in a realistic way and it contributes so. so much to the bleak feeling that I think works well in this film in terms of um, Hedwig and Mad-Eye's deaths you've completely turned me around and I totally get that but it's just compiled more evidence for why I don't like Dobby's death oh I agree oh yeah I yeah. actually <laughs> agree with you on that and I, yes. I didn't mean, I didn't mean to make a rod from my own back there but I actually do completely agree with you on no Dobby's no I, yeah. yeah no it is it's just kind of made me dislike Dobby's death even more well, they did the complete opposite yeah, honestly Dobby's you death. have completely turned me around on Hedwig and Mad-Eye's death oh well um, there we go then Happy to so have. yeah because <laughs> no I, to be honest it's something I hadn't considered um, about uh, Cedric, Sirius, and Dumbledore just kind of gone. Yeah, no, Dumbledore's no, no, a little bit more dramatic in the films in that he has his slow motion fall to the ground. Yeah, um, mm. but I he's mean, already d- gone. With the possible it's... exception of Dumbledore, like we didn't know it at the time that he was long term ill. Like no one in Harry Potter is long term ill. No one dies slowly. Everybody is just gone in a second, and Harry mm. gets no chance to say goodbye to them. It's a it's a deliberate running theme, and I think when you're in the final throes of war, it makes sense to take it to a logical extreme where people are just dying. You know, when you turn your head and you turn back and someone's dead and you haven't even noticed, I think it takes it to that logical extreme. I mean, even Harry dies suddenly. Yeah, like he just walks into yeah. Voldemort. And Voldemort, gonna get over us. Yeah, Harry just dies. dies. Yeah, because that's what happens at the end of the day. Um, yeah. The only, again, the only exception to that, again, another exception to the um, quick death things is Voldemort's death, which I feel like, which again, only happens in the next film, but which we'll talk more about then. But again, it's. I feel like they get a pass with that anyway because it's you know yeah the main villain yeah. dying, um, but yeah I, I I love that I love the and it, quick deaths and not not just death I think in general the themes of these stories and the tone of the of this book in particular I think comes through really strongly and as an adaptation I do think they do a really good job um, not just in terms of the fact that it's a close accurate adaptation but I just think as I say the tone is right and what they do with the characters for the most part. Is right. Um, my 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 kind of issue really though is because it's such a faithful adaptation. There's things that have been cut from previous films that they now decide to do here, and it's too late. Like introducing Bill Weasley, it's like it, really is yeah. that necessary? And there's oh my god, there's a line which just makes me clench up every time I hear it because it's so cringy, which is um, the exposition when um, when Tong says, "My husband, the Joker." 
Oh, oh I hate yeah. it so much. It's what Russell T Davies made this comment once about a dialogue that he calls "Happy Wedding Day, Sis," where people <laughs> deliver dialogue to deliver an ex- exposition in a way that they would no one would ever speak in real life, and it, that that is such a Happy Wedding Day, Sis, to me. Like, My husband, the Joker. And like Dobby turning up and everybody like being happy to see Dobby and it's like you haven't seen each other since Chamber of Secrets. Ron's never met you. Why are you all happy to see each other? To be honest, I can forgive most of the stuff with Dobby in this because the first forty five minutes, as you say, is very bleak. Yeah. So when he when he turns up, it's a bit like oh Dobby, oh a bit of comedy. And when he keeps interrupting Mundungus Fletcher and yeah. Creature, and he's like, and then, and then, and then I did this, and then, and I saw Mundungus doing this, and I saw this, and I saw that, and then I think Mundungus and Dobby and Creature and everything it kind of works really well in I this because they're they're a bit of light relief. Uh, Mundungus is not at all I imagine in the film as he is compared to the books, but I think it works quite well because. Like you said, the film sort of needs a bit of those comedy moments, and um, yeah. Dobby does a really good job of injecting them into the film because it's, it's it's a shame that they only discover how cool of a character Dobby is in this film because um, he's used in Chamber of Secrets and he's used to probably more, too much of an effect in my opinion, and then he disappears and comes back here, and it's like well, but I suppose the only way you could have introduced him is by adding to subplots like Hermione's elf positions. I know that's the thing. Yeah. Well, this is this is this is kind of the example of what I was getting at, really, which is that it's too late to bring in Dobby now because the deed is done. You know, you've caught him from the previous three, four books. Um, you know, at this point, it's not been earned. Like he, in the books, he's kind of a feature. Like he's a recurring character. You always see him. He's always there for the comedy subplots. He's very much kind of like a C three PO or Jar Jar type comic relief character where he's intrinsically safe. You're never gonna hurt Dobby. Like, that's just, like, that. that's off limits. That's like punching a puppy. Like, it's just never going to happen. Mm. And so when he dies, it's like, shit, things have got real here. But in this film, he's just another character. He's just another cameo. So it's not being earned, and that's the problem I have with that's, that's a fair point. And I feel like it's put in the film and it's made so dramatic, because although it's not earned in the films, it is earned in the books, which is why people who have read the books get an emotional attachment to that film, because uh, uh, an emotional attachment to Dobby's death and feel quite sad about it. Um, unless they examine the film in a very critical perspective in the same way that we are doing. Because although you've not seen Dobby much in the film, you know a lot about his character because of the books. However, that commits the immortal sin of having an adaptation where someone must have read the books to understand what's going on and get the full impact of it, which is just a lazy way of making a film. Well, this is a good point to throw to you, Rob, then, because obviously you're not as much of a book purist as us, but you still don't like Dobby's death. I still don't like it, no. You talked to us why. Well, it can be best summed up by Ed, who's been on the podcast before. When I took him through all of the Harry Potter films about two or three years ago, for the first time, when Dobby died, he went, oh, no, not um, not, not Kevin. Oh, no, not, not little Kevin. <laughs> and and he, jo- he jokes about it all the time. He, like Recently on Facebook, he posted a little like picture where um, he, it was like a... Dobby in black and white faded monochrome like OM RIP GBNF little Kevin <laughs> it's almost like not Lenny isn't it it's like why do you yeah. all care so much about Dobby <laughs> and like the only way it works is if you have seen the Chamber of Secrets a hundred times yeah. or read and all so, the books yes. and so yeah or read all the books so that Dobby is kind of imprinted in your memory so that when he turns up in the seventh film no one has to point to him and go, oh, it's Dobby. 
Like, it's... It, I don't know, it's just... It's oh. one of those where unless you... I mean, I had seen The Chamber of Secrets a hundred times, but... Even it's our old like friend, Dobby the house elf. <laughs> I've got a great analogy. This is very similar to... Just go, going back to some um, uh, previous Rebel Chums episodes. If, if we look at Force Awakens, this is almost exactly what would have happened if when Han Solo was introduced on the Falcon, he was actually only ever in a little bit of one film in the original trilogy. Yeah. Like, yeah. that is the sort of feeling you would get. It's like, it's, it's an important character moment when Dobby appears, but it's only important because we know him so well in the books, and if you, if you don't know him so well from the books, then you're kind of fucked, and you're like, well, why is this little elf here, and what the hell is he doing? Or oh, it's like, well, it's, it's actually... like oh, C-3PO when he's getting his memories wiped in Rise of Skywalker. It's like, imagine if you'd only seen him in the first few scenes of A New Hope, and now he's I like, mean, there's a really good example wiped. I can pull, actually, from really recent pull, pull media. Pull an example for us. Um, I mean, obviously, because um, the, the, the one comparison I use, and I think I'm going to use this as a positive um, for the, the show I'm pulling it from. You can tell where I'm going. Um, this is like Rickon Stark's death in Game of Thrones, where yeah. Rickon is a relatively minor character for the first three seasons, and then he disappears for for three seasons, and then they bring him back, and then they kill him, and they but they don't kill him, and they don't treat his death as like the end of an episode. Oh my god, cliffhanger! It's more well, he's dead now, and John's really angry, so let's go, let's start the battle. And then they go, bury him. And then they forget about him. They, they, they never mention him again. The word Rickon is never mentioned again after he dies. I think it's spoken, like, once. <laughs> and, like, and so, like, but that's the thing. They kind of know that he's a kind of nothingy character now. And it's the same with these, where, like, if you're just watching the films in isolation, just one at a time... It's like, oh yeah, Dobby. Oh, well, I mean, oh, yeah. one thing I really do like about <laughs> what happens with Dobby, though, and it's an easy point to miss because I always forget this. Actually, is that his big heroic stand is against the Malfoys, who were, lest we forget, they were his owners. So they yes. know Dobby personally. They used to have him as a slave, and so I like that his big heroic stand oh, is God, against the Malfoys. Forget that, don't you, you do forget that, and I think that's a point which could maybe they should have done some exposition there. They could possibly have underlined that point, where like maybe if like when he first appears, if Draco had gone like Dobby or something like that to show that he knows him, like I, ju- I think that point mm. is oh, not have... made well enough, and I really like that. Oh, they miss a trick there because as soon as like they escape, Lucius gets knocked out. And he's the one that has the interaction with him at the end of Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. Where a, a, a Lucius Dobby scene in that context so would have been great. Why, yeah. why not have Lucius be the one kill him? Yeah. I, mean, I don't again, think it's bad, by the way. I just don't think it's anywhere near as effective as they want it to be. No, when it's late... Like, it's, with the slow death and bleeding exactly, out. Yeah, and it's like, the, his it's, last words are Harry Potter and like, it's, bloody it, hell. It's there, kind of, yeah. in, from a film perspective, they only make such a big deal of it to to create a climax which yeah. is a big part of the issue I have with this I could tolerate the slowness in the second half and the the kind of uneventfulness if I knew it was leading to a big climax it just the other shoe never really drops the film just kind of peters out they make what they can of that big showdown at Malfoy Manor but at the end of the day it's just a little one fight there's not much you can really do with it um, mm. if it had led to something bigger then it would get me through the film a bit more. Like, for example, I think what I would do in terms of these two parts, I would possibly have shortened the camping sequence and then put Gringotts at the end of this film and leave it on the cliffhanger of, yeah, we've got all the Horcruxes now, on the let's go to Hogwarts. Or just, and leave it on the cliffhanger of, like, heading to Hogwarts. That's where I would leave it, and then you could make this a punchier, tighter film with a big action climax. Or just extend it, the Mindfell Man a bit and turn it into an actual, you know, 
big breakout scene where yeah. got to, like, yeah, instead yeah, of having yeah. Dobby snap his fingers well. and take yeah. them away um, I guess I suppose when um, magic's involved in the films it's kind of difficult to do that sort of thing because you know the characters always have some sort of escape route um, it, especially in terms of Dobby the elf in this case but um, I completely agree with what you just said about um, Dobby's death and uh, how they milk it for all it's got purely to make an, what is essentially an artificial climax for the film um, because it, it contradicts all of the other deaths that have happened in the film and the message that those, those deaths send, which is very frustrating because it's a, a film contradicting itself and its own messages um, and the way that it's making itself. Um, and it just, like, it's... Again, it commits it, the really lazy sin of just having to rely on people reading extra source material to actually feel a connection to this character who is dying. Um, and they milk it and they try and make you feel so sad about it. And to be fair, at the time, I did feel sad about it because I've read the books a million times and Dobby's a really big character and I really like him in the books. But it's just, it's it's lazy film writing and it's a lazy way of making the film. And like you said, they should have done something bigger with a climax to sort of make up for that instead. But yeah. they didn't. Um, I think Voldemort finds in the Elder Wand is a good cliffhanger. But yeah, it's but just not, put but, it after the Gringotts thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th- not, I think not that much time passes. I, I think a slight restructure was needed in terms of, like the two parts. As I say, I'm, I always defend that. I think the two parts was justified, but it just needed a tighter restructure in terms of where that cliffhanger yeah, falls. It's not like the second yeah. half needs a Gringotts scene. It's got the whole Battle of Hogwarts, which they could again, make which much I think dealer, right? could have been longer because there's significant character moments that are lost from the Battle of Hogwarts in the film. So I think they could have made that longer. They should have turned it into like a Battle of Helm's Deep style thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, while we're in the middle of having long discussions about things we don't like, Andy, do you want to have the floor for why you absolutely hate the scene of uh, Harry and Hermione dancing about the place? Well, you kind of hit the nail on the head earlier before when you said um, that you like it for what you sort of see it as, not for what it's intended as. And I would say that to a more extreme degree because for me, Harry and Hermione they are brother and sister that's that, i mean it's said outright in the books that that's how they see each other and i've always always seen them that way there's not a hint not a flicker of romance between harry and hermione and i've i've just always seen it that way i i just think that the dancing scene how it should be is that these are two people who are really depressed and they just decide they just need to cheer up so they just have a dance for one little moment in amongst all this misery, they're just two friends enjoying each other's company and having a bit of fun. And then it's over and they're sad again. And I just, I, I really could like that for what it's worth. I was absolutely, my jaw fell through the floor though when I saw an interview on telly of David Yates explaining what the scene was supposed to be, which is, this is Harry and Hermione being attracted to each other while, while Ron's away and nearly kissing each other and deciding at the last moment it wouldn't be fair to Ron, so deciding not to be together because they don't want to hurt Ron's feelings. Fuck that right out of the room. That is just awful. That is just... oh, I, This is Basically, one of the main reasons I say that David Yates does not get this story, because that that is an absolute anvil drop on this story well, if Harry and Hermione have got that going on. It's just... I, I just cannot tolerate it. I can't tolerate that it scene. It retcons Ron's relationship with Hermione as Ron basically being a pity shag. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I mean... I... Go on, Ron. What do you think? <laughs> the thing is... The thing I find really strange about this is that J.K. Rowling... This is the first film that J.K. Rowling produced. 
mm-hmm. in the saga. Yeah. It was the first time she was actually credited as a producer, and I find it strange that she would let this scene go through. Well, and she says she... now that she says now that she wishes she'd written Harry and Hermione as the couple. She actually is on board with it. She says if she could write it again now, she would write Harry and Hermione. But the thing is, you didn't, J.K. You didn't. So you got to work with what you've got. well the one thing I do like about that scene is I mean again my interpretation of it even though it's not the correct interpretation of it my interpretation of it has always been like you said Andy where if anything it doesn't just feel like a scene where Harry and Hermione have a little moment of trying to forget what's going on around them I feel like it actually feels like a declaration that they won't kiss each other that the closest they will ever really get to doing anything like that is just having a dance and then getting on with their lives and you know Harry's for Ginny and uh, Hermione is for Ron and the the dance kind of feels like a, feels like they just consummate their friendship if you know what I mean I sort of do know what you it, mean and I can buy it in that way yeah it's just hard um, for me to ignore and they could totally the be friends with benefits oh no 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 not for um, pure good sacred Harry Potter oh my no. god speaking of the Hermione and um, Harry relationship that poor awkward scene where um, Danny Radcliffe and Emma Watson had to basically strip naked and feel each other up and snog each other's throats apart oh. that must have been the most horrific thing for them to experience ever because they're basically like brother and sister yeah Emma Watson was asked in an interview like what was it like doing the kiss with Rupert Grint for part two and she kind of shrugged and was like, oh, that was fine. She said, that was fine. What I was really worried about was having to like basically full-on make out with Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> um, there is one thing I like about the dance scene, and that is not only the use of Oh Children by Nick Cave, but the little yeah. story behind it, uh, which I read into. Uh, apparently it was chosen by Matt Biffer, who was like the music supervisor yeah, yeah. for the film. Uh, apparently he chose the song because like he was splitting from his wife. Uh, and the lyrics spoke to him about the anxieties he was having about potentially leaving his children behind or feeling like he was abandoning them. And apparently Nick Cave himself uh, is happy for a lesser-known song of his to be featured in such a big film. But It's a nice song. I just think the whole scene just feels so... What TV Tropes calls a big-lipped alligator moment, which is like a scene that's just out of nowhere, that has no context, that doesn't feel in keeping with the rest of the film. Well, I mean, it's just It just doesn't feel very Harry Pottery to it me, does, that scene. It makes sense for them to sort of examine their friendship and see how close they get when Ron has just abandoned them and left them on their own and they're out in the woods alone and everything's really bleak and they're trying to find solace in each other. So, you know, I can kind of understand a fleeting bit of romance, like happening there because it feels like they're the only people in the world and they've all that they've got at that moment in time and if it happened and then it sort of got extinguished because they came back to reality and realised they got a job to do and Hermione ends up falling for Ron and whatnot that's fine but it's not that and it's not anything else it's just sort of an implied moment that doesn't really carry any weight to it because you know again the actors aren't great at portraying the feelings that are going on. To me, it reads like a textbook deleted scene. That would be a hard cut from the film for me. That scene. Yes, I completely agree, actually. Oh, okay, I yeah, no, I get that. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about some things that I've not mentioned that are real positives for me. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. First of all, I love the, um, the retrospective rumours and skeletons that are all kind of coming out of Dumbledore's closet in this film. Yeah. Uh, like, the fact that he's dead means that this kind of allure this like illusion of Dumbledore is kind of gone and so it means that people can like Rita Skeeter can stamp all over his grave he's and, like, only that... human after all yeah. yeah exactly and I like this idea like that this role model this celebrated hero this 
darker and more, you know, he's actually a more darker and complex person with a difficult past. And it's a sign that Harry's having to grow up a little bit faster than he's really ready to cope with because this is someone that he's worshipped and is seen as like this invincible father figure. And not only is he dead, but he was flawed, inexperienced, ignorant. He was part of a difficult family history. Yeah. He, he briefly associated with fascists. Like, you know, there's all this weird stuff around Grindelwald and the Elder Wand and what the Elder Wand is capable of and why Dumbledore had it. And, you know, like, if you think about the very, 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 very end of um, the last film where Harry, realising that he's the most powerful wizard in the world breaks the Elder Wand and throws it away, then you think, why didn't Dumbledore do that when he had it? And, like, so you think, what's the... And so there's loads of... It doesn't, like, completely break Dumbledore down as a character, but it does suggest that there's this other narrative that we've not had a chance to hear. That make him more of a rounded character. Yeah, I really really like what they do with, with Dumbledore in this part of the story, yeah. I really, really yeah. enjoy it, and I think it's it, one of my favourite lines of the film. Actually, is when Ron's aunt Muriel says, "Honestly, boy, are you sure you knew him at all?" I love that line because it does make you think that, like, okay, de- let's drop down to reality here, Harry. You were a school kid, and he was just your teacher. You don't know what was going on in his life. Andy. And and I, I thought that was—it's a really good reality in a film that's full of them. It's a really good reality check. I love that line. And it's a good sort of meta commentary on how the films and the books and the story as a whole um, sort of made Dumbledore just this sort of wise old man figure guiding Harry through the story and stuff. And then actually, it turns out he's a lot more than that. And the film is suddenly it's mature again. Another example of how these this series really well matures with its audience. It takes characters that are like they are tropes. Dumbledore is just a kindly old man that helps characters get through things until the very end, where you're old enough and you've been through enough in the story to understand people as more complex characters. And that's when Dumbledore becomes a more interesting character, and he starts to have all these flaws revealed and the stuff about his family history and about his sister and about his brother. All of this stuff comes out, and it's just it makes him a much more interesting character. And it's good that... I agree with you, Rob. It's good that they do that after his death because all of, because you no longer have this illusion of Dumbledore. Yeah, he has no right of reply. Exactly, exactly. And it just makes him such a more interesting character. In my opinion, can I yeah, just, way, can way I do, more But the thing is, though, not criticism of the film at all, criticism of J.K. Rowling. Excellent moment of the story to reveal that Dumbledore was gay if you wanted to. So, you know. And she was a producer on the film, she could have yeah. done that. So, yeah. there's that. But the thing is, the thing is, Dumbledore wasn't gay until it would have made J.K. Rowling very, very popular and progressive to say that he was gay. Well, I mean, that's just. That's, so... that's what she does these days all over, is retrospectively. Make, make characters woke, well, and I don't like there's it. So much ca- <laughs> there is so much camping in this film, it would have been an excellent opportunity for J.K. Rowling to um, express on the on screen how wizards used to poop and then get rid of the poop with a wand. <laughs> oh my god. That but was that's not in there. So, you know. Uh, more yeah, okay. Um, I mean, I, I feel like we've got this far into like doing the Harry Potter series without me saying that I really don't like J.K. Rowling. I think she's a really awful person. But, I don't think she's uh, a really? Person. Oh, I like her as a person. I just think, I, I just think you know, 
if you didn't write really something, horrible. you didn't write it. I think you can't go back and make these changes. She's so, a, I remember I, I asked someone once when they I, I laughed so much. I asked someone once, uh, a friend of mine who's gay, I said, when did you come out? And he said, when J.K. Rowling decided I was gay. And I thought that was a hilarious comment. <laughs> I do, I'm talking a little bit about J.K. Rowling, I do have an issue with her, um, sort of like, she, she is of that generation where she thinks she's really woke because gay rights and feminism and all that stuff. But she's also too old to like be doesn't extend to trans rights exactly that's what i'm going to say she she falls down the pit hole that a lot of people her age fall down when it comes to diversity and rights and thinking you're really cool and that sort of stuff is that she is a massive turf massive that's why i don't like her oh i don't know the i mean i, I appreciate trans people exclusionary are... radical feminist oh so it's like you're a radical feminist but um women are women and trans women aren't women and turf oh, okay. isn't a fucking slur so no turf yeah. isn't a slur if you no, don't like not. the word turf it's because you don't like the description it's being given to you it's like when people complain when they're being called racist for being racist if you don't like being called racist or you don't like being called a turf don't be racist and don't be a turf that's the yeah. antidote to the yeah, we solution. should we should do this we should apply this modern lingo a bit more often like uncle vernon is gammon yeah, <laughs> <laughs> is the definition of gammon. He's Which a proper. He's a he's a nice thick cut of gammon with his yeah. big beefy face. Yeah, he's even described as beefy, so the meat comparison is already there. Anyway, oh god. Um, speaking of racism, um, really like the magic is might stuff with Umbridge. Oh my god, oh, I, I remember that. when we went um, to the Harry Potter studio tour, we um, we got to see the full magic of might. It's magic really quite is harrowing, isn't it? Oh my god, it's 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 horrible stuff. Horrible. It's a great great piece of production that magic is might. Stuff. Statue. It's it's horrible, and yeah. I, I do love how the Wizarding World is like. It does feel a bit sudden in this film because, like, again, to add to the bleakness, like suddenly the Ministry is like completely reversed all of its positions on Muggles in the space of like a year. I mean, um, that's because Voldemort's the Minister of Magic. Yeah, basically. it collapses, so, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, what, what's his name? The Minister of Magic at the moment. Pius, Pius, I think. Oh, Pius who, yeah. by the way, is played by the guy who played Tarkin in Rogue One. So, yeah. Oh, oh, underneath the uh, motion capture stuff. Yeah, he's called Guy Henry, and that's my fact of the oh. week. So, yeah, do continue, Jake. Um, the only thing I'm not clear on, um, how, how the hell did Umbridge survive the centaurs? Like, what happened there? Oh, she, well, I think it's implied that she was never killed by them. She was simply raped by them. I think that oh actually is correct, yeah. So, Oof. I mean, why centaurs would want to rape Christ. Umbridge? There are multiple moments, and while we're on the subject of J.K. Rowling doing things in a kind of oh, Aramis's, you know, behind the scenes kind of way, there are multiple instances of rape in the Harry Potter series that are never remarked upon. Voldemort was conceived by rape. Um, it's basically said that Aberforth Dumbledore was once arrested for raping a goat. And there's that as well. So, you know, thanks, J.K. Jesus. <laughs> Um, back to sort of like you know good stuff, not not rape. Can I can um, I say a good thing? The score, I really love the score in this one. It's really really good. Yeah, Alexander Desplat adds a touch of class. Um, of course, it, it, you two will love from uh, being big fans of uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Absolutely, he's done loads of great scores. Benjamin Button, Imitation Game. He's really, really, really good. And he's been nominated for best score six times in the last ten years for the various different. And I believe films he's only won done. once. Which is, uh, or yeah. maybe not at all, um, but a bit of a scandal there. But yeah, he's great. And uh, if you can't get John Williams, you know, you've got the next best, best thing there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really, really, really nice score. Especially the opening scene with that track called Obliviate, where they're all heading off and Hermione's wiping her parents' minds. Yeah, great. Oh, uh, one, of, one of Hermione's parents is Michelle Fairley, Cat yeah. Stark. Got to put it in. Yeah, we noticed that as well. Yeah. Uh, God oh, bless Catelyn Stark. 
Well, nice, you know, nice as in, in a filmic way, but it's a horrible scene to watch. And by the way, something I really love about the film is Hermione's character arc. I think this is sort of Hermione's movie in a way, where her gradual kind of descent into despair, where by the mm. point where she sat in the woods with Harry and she's like, you know what, Harry, maybe we could just stay here and just forget this and Girl, just get old. old. Yeah. And like, she's completely given up. I, I really, really like Hermione's story arc throughout this film. Yeah. Um... I want to talk a l- Sorry, Rob, I know you're going through a list of things that you like about this film, but I'm just going to add with something that I also like about this. Um, I'm going to add with something that I also like about this film, and that is that the general direction and styling of how the film is done is so... Oh, no, I love it too. It's so much yeah. improved. Like, it's not like exemplary. Really. I don't think it's the most well... It's, you know, it's no um, Prisoner of Azkaban in terms of how it's um, thematically shot to be like metaphors and whatnot in the mm. really cool way that Alfonso Caran does it. But it's much more competently directed. And I really, really appreciate how, unlike Half-Blood Prince in particular, um, he... Um, what's his name? D- 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 Who are you talking the about? The director? David yeah. Yates. David Yates, that's it. How David Yates doesn't fall into the trap of make, trying to artificially make a film bleak by literally making it dark like he does in Half-Blood Prince. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it's desaturated and it's decoloured because... Obviously, the life is slowly being drained out of the characters in the same way that the colour is sort of being drained out of this film. Um, so, which is okay, but again, a little bit ham-fisted. And I, I actually prefer a little bit of, um, what's it called, a, 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 like contrast in that um, when it comes to films doing that sort of thing. I don't like it to be too obvious. Uh, but again, that's just me being overly critical of the film Um, I I still I think I think it's an okay technique but even though it's desaturated and the colour's taken out of it like there are a lot of scenes in here that could be really dark especially when the camping when Harry's camping at night for example and there are no light sources like realistically we shouldn't be able to see anything this should be darker than the scene uh, in Half-Blood Prince at the beginning where they're going through what's-his-face's house the characters yeah oh god Slughorn where they go to Slughorn's house and it's like you literally can't see what's going on yeah it's like baby's first colour grading software that that should be what it's like but he doesn't fall into the trap of doing it like that because suddenly he's realised that people actually need to see what's happening on screen so instead (laughs) the exposures increase you can see the trees you can see basically everything in the scene except what's at the very back of it Um, and you know you can you can enjoy the scene I mean I'm not a huge fan of the, the camping sequences in this film, but at least you can actually see what's going on in them. Yeah. And there are a lot of areas in this film where, like, that darkness um, is... It feels like it's there because the film is emotionally quite dark, but it isn't literally there because he's finally learned... David Yates has finally learned not to take emotions literally when it comes to directing <laughs> yeah. films. <laughs> yeah, I completely, completely agree on that. I actually... I used to really, really call out the uh, silver doe scene for being ridiculously dark but it actually now we've got a decent tv and it's on blu-ray it actually looks pretty good and i don't have a problem with the color grading or the contrast in this one i think he does a decent job and what uh, you said this earlier rob one thing this film is full of is gorgeous establishing shots i i like to think of this one as the uh, the visit britain movie like this is the tourist I am just guide. in love with the um the scottish highlands yeah so, visit scotland yeah, yeah. <laughs> They actually go to the Forest of Dean as well, don't they? They do. Forest of, yeah, which always looks lovely. That's the thing. Like once you can get out on location and use real places, it's uh, you know the world is yours, really. And, and like, like Shaftesbury said, Avenue, that looks great. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. And that radio, as you said, that radio montage where they're listening to all the names and they're going to like that, loads um, of different places. In that little room. segment actually reminded me um, where they were walking through like the burnt out caravan parks and stuff. That reminded me of a TV show I've been re-watching uh, recently. I've been taking North through it after I watched it about six or seven years ago. Uh, do you remember that Channel 4 series called Utopia? Yes, I do. I never, I've um, never seen it. but yeah. good, though. Yeah, it's great. I, I really like it. Um, but one of the distinguishing features of that show was not just the uh, intense colour saturation and graphic violence, but the really really far away wide-angle long shots, especially of, like, rolling hillsides mm-hmm. with, like, silhouettes just kind of walking along the top. And there were loads of shots in this film of, like, rolling hillsides with Harry, Ron and Hermione in the distance... And it, it kind of reminded me of that a little bit. And there are loads of um, the shots that always come to mind in my head are the ones of the uh, the tent right on the water's edge that's like out on that kind of like spike of land that heads out into a giant lock. Yeah. Um, there are um, the, the shot where they uh, disapparate from the ministry and end up in the forest, and the trees kind of like pull upwards and downwards. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And then they settle. Um, yeah, there were loads of uh, loads of really good shots in this. I think like the first minute or so, up to the point where Snape arrives at the meeting at Malfoy Manor, is a bit dark, mm. um, but it's not too bad. And it's fine um, because it's not entirely important to know where he's walking to at that point because part of the mystery is wondering where he, he is. Where going. the hell is he going? Exactly. Oh, by the way, I love the fact that in this film they just like they don't even they drop all pretense and like Snape has just gone like full on goth makeup, grey skin. Yeah. Uh, like really thick eyeshadow, like it, silent for boring stirs. Yeah, yeah, longer hair. Like it's basically um... uh, basically ebony, darkness, dementia, raven way. Who, by the way, <laughs> is canonical? She's one of the names mentioned as having been killed by the Death Eaters. Ebony Raven Way. They read out on the radio. No way. Yeah. Oh, I actually feel quite happy about that. That's really sweet. Well, that she died. <laughs> <laughs> but it is sweet that she gets a little tribute, and because like as flawed as my immortal is heavily there's one thing you can def- you definitely can't accuse it of like it, one thing it definitely is is passionate like, oh yeah it is absolutely passionate that, and it's so flawed whoever it's perfect. wrote that is so full of enthusiasm mm. and yeah. tara gillespie she oh. uh, she she revealed herself a few years ago and gave an interview um and it was a fascinating read Confirmed i recommend it's basically 100 percent like 100 percent real and she was basically she, she she was a very odd teenage I hope girl. Eb- Ebony Ravenway was buried in an I Love MCR t-shirt. <laughs> well, no, the thing is she was dead all along because she was a vampire. She was undead. Oh, that's so true. So she lives to bite another day. I didn't, mean that, didn't mean that to be the point it sounded like. <laughs> yeah, for, for, for those who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about a Harry Potter fan fiction known as My Immortal, where essentially there is a girl at Hogwarts who... Shops at Hot Topic, really loves My Chemical Romance and Evanescence, and there are loads of references. And she hates to, Hilary like, Duff and a stupid fucking face. Yeah. <laughs> everyone is either a, everyone is either a goth or a prep, and basically an example of a prep is Dumbledore, who at one point comes flying in in a hoodie that says Avril Lavigne, <laughs> and goes, "What the fuck are you doing, you motherfuckers?" Yeah, and it's, there, it's and absolutely there spectacular. Is, there is. Um, it's not finished, but there is a YouTube series that turns it into like a low budget film. Yeah, I'm aware. Oh, amazing. Um, we really should do a Rebel Chums episode. It's not finished, but it's, oh my god, that'd be great. Um, 
<laughs> one thing, speaking of uh, fictional stories, nice little segue, I want to talk about the tale of the three brothers mm-hmm. and the gorgeous animated sequence towards the end of this because, wow. I mean, the um, thing is, like, what kind of a fairy tale is this? Like, it... There's no happy ending. It's it's a pretty dark little fable. Well, it's, to tell it's, it's, more of a, it's more of a fable. Yeah. And fables and fairy tales, like, in their original inception, like, uh, are actually quite dark. Yeah. I'm just, I mean, you said that as well when we were watching it, so don't act like you didn't think so. No, I agree. Well. Like, this is, in, this is in the Tales of Beetle the Bad, which is supposed to be, you know, babbity rabbity um, and the, the talking stump or whatever, and like fun kids' tales, and then suddenly you've got this one about where um, they encounter death and a guy gets his throat cut. Open I mean, I don't know, maybe another one. Maybe Babbity Rabbity's like that. Maybe Babbity Rabbity makes a deal with the devil to bring back his long dead wife. Well, that's what happens. Wabbity Rabbity. This what happens in that one, and then the guy kills himself because he ends up so depressed. What I'm thinking of are things like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. That doesn't end very well. Oh, yeah, because doesn't she get eaten? Little Little Red Riding Hood doesn't end very well. No, Uh, she cuts open. The Huntsman cuts open. sat on a wall. The Huntsman cuts open the wolf, and her grandmother's freed. So it does end well. And Humpty but Dumpty's not a fairy tale. Death, that's about an egg. Correct. It's, it's actually Humpty Dumpty is never about an egg. There's never implied that it's, he's an egg. Just sure. but it's, it, but no. it's oh my god, you're right. Put together yeah. again. We just assume he's an egg because an egg makes it friendlier when he cracks open. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. I didn't know that. So you know, tales of Beetle the Bard. It's uh, kind of low key in terms of violence. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that was a tangent. Join us next week for Fairy Tales Week. Um, yeah, so <laughs> next week we'll be doing fairy tales of New York. This animation, I mean, it's lovely, and that's all I've got to say about it. So, Rob, go on. Um, okay, so it's shit. not just that it's it's not just that the animation is lovely. It's the fact that this is the first time that these films have dropped into animation, and the connection between the real world and the animation, and everything is just seamless, like utterly seamless. Um, and I love the like the little um, when the first brother is killed and there's that blood splatter on the wall and then suddenly the colours invert in, in the shadow yeah. and then they the, it, the, there's like a slightly different colour scheme for the rest of the sequence and you get the how graceful death is and like with his swirling cloak and how all the little like the bridges put together. Oh, and I love how oh. he cuts a bit of his own cloak off to make it the invisibility cloak. That's awesome. Yeah, and like the, the oh god, it's so satisfying to watch. It's gorgeous. Well, as soon as we finish this, I'm just going to watch it on YouTube again. <laughs> it, it's glorious. It's actually a really influential scene as well. It's become a bit of a trendsetter in whenever you have to tell something really dark and mythical, drop into animation to do it. Yeah. Uh, quite a few of the Marvel movies do it. Guardians 2 does it. Um, one of the Thor movies does it. There was an episode of Doctor Who, funnily enough, on the other week, which did it as well, and it told like this ancient battle between two planets, and they did an animation sequence to show it. It's become this kind of tried and tested technique, and I believe Deathly Hallows invented this. No, Kill Bill did it first. Oh, Kill Bill, yes. I imagine yeah. there were films from the 30s and 40s that did it as well, but like... Um... Uh, the, no, there weren't any films that were a hybrid between um, real life and animation until uh, Mary, Mary Poppins, Poppins and yeah. Ben and Brune 6. Yeah. So no mm. films would have done it until then. But like you know, you know what I mean. But like, I'm I'm sure Deathly Hallows wasn't the first. But and also recently, another one to throw in uh, quite recently is that uh, to catch you up to the story with the new Birds of Prey, the Harley Quinn uh, film that has a whole animated sequence at the start ah. to to catch you up. Uh, basically, tells you the events of Suicide Squad and goes like, "Yep, yeah, we know nobody saw it, so <laughs> <Not for laughs> here enough. we are." Um, I 
just want to drop in a little. Um, I'll, do, I'll, I'll limit. I'll limit myself to two minutes. I'm going to time myself to extol. Oh, the don't virtues. worry, Rob. We're timing you all the time. I am yeah. genuinely going to time you. Let's see if you can do it. Okay, I'm lim- go. going to limit myself to two minutes. I'm going to extol the virtues of the chase sequence in the woods. Okay, go. So. The chase sequence in the woods in this film is my favourite sequence in the whole of the saga. Um, this was something that only really became apparent to me when I went through my rewatch about three years ago when I took my parents through all seven films. Um, one thing that David Yates does that I really, really like is that when he gets to big climactic battles and stuff like that, he tends to drop the music out. The, the first example of him doing this is um, when Dumbledore and Voldemort fight each other. Then he does it in Half-Blood Prince when Harry and Draco fight each other. And now in this, it means that they can hear the, the twigs snapping under their feet and, you know, like when they're running and... There's that sweeping camera shot that if you look at how they put the scene together, they had to do that so many times. Um, This sweeping camera shot that goes from left to right as the characters all go from right to left. Um, It starts with this really odd staging where some of the snatchers are in front of Harry, Ron and Hermione, but let them run past because they really enjoy the thrill of the chase. Um, there's the, well, go on, snatch them. And then it all kind of comes to a head with the best bit of quick thinking that Hermione ever does. Like that, Hermione's very good at thinking on her feet, but Jesus Christ, that stinging jinx saves everybody's lives. I mean, I don't know why they didn't just apparate away, but yeah. Well, because I think they could have, there's a bit of a warning maybe that um, things don't go very well when um, Ron gets splinched and maybe they're a bit wary of doing it oh, in a true. rush again. No, true. Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, or, I, I don't know. But um, no, it, it's awesome. It really is awesome. I've, I've always really liked it. Um, the, the snapping of the twigs and just like, it's just complete silence and you just get that boom, boom, timpani at the start of the sequence. And then the, gradually the music kind of builds up with those little shepherd notes and little like discordant harmonies and stuff. It's great. And then as like the spells come into it with the explosions and the chains and people falling over and hurting themselves and then it ends with the stinging jinx and yeah, no, love it. I, I think about, it's awesome. You just about went over two minutes, I'm afraid. Ah, but fuck. Good yeah. effort nonetheless. Well done. And I, I agree with you, it's a really, really great sequence. Funny little tidbit about that sequence as well. I watched a making of documentary once where Emma Watson was saying because they knew they were going to have to do so many shots of it, the three of them kind of made a competition of it of who can run the fastest who can get to the end the quickest yes they did they made a yeah. race of it and were like pulling these silly jumps and were laughing like every time to the point where David Yates had to tell them off and be like guys can you take this seriously please because <laughs> <laughs> they just kept going like absurdly fast and just making each other laugh oh, <laughs> yeah which then, I think um, is nice yeah yeah and then we get to we get to see Luna again a little bit after that I like Luna um Always you know, feels she's... like she's got a big part in the film, even though she's a relatively minor character. I, I yeah. love, I love the kind of confronting social awkwardness things that she says. Like I love. Well, there's a line in the books that I just love so much that I was so gutted wasn't in the films, where she says, "I liked being in Dumbledore's army. It was like having friends." 
And I just like Aww. that line just makes me like burn up inside. But there's the one in this which I always love where her and her dad are talking to Harry and she yeah. goes, Come on, Dad. Harry doesn't want to talk to us. He's just being polite. <laughs> and I just love <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, she's so uh, speaking great. of, um nice to see uh Reese Ifans turn up in this. I think he does a good job as uh Xenophilius uh Lovegood. Who's, who's um, got probably probably the most awkward name of uh, of the books to spell and pronounce. I yeah. know, but that's J.K. Rowling's own fault if she didn't want to write his name out so much. Um, and yeah, the stuff at Malfoy Man is pretty good. It's, it's, it's standard. It's just a good sequence. It's not it's bad. It's fine. I'm a little underwhelmed by Harry literally just going up to Malfoy and just ranching some wands off him. But I suppose that shows Malfoy basically being sort of unwilling to do what is what he feels he's being dragged into doing, trying to convince himself that he's this big baddie all along and actually he's just kind of a scared little boy. And when Harry's... Of course, little does he know, at that moment, he is the most powerful wizard in the world because he's the master of the yes. other ones. and then there's that true. little moment where Harry disarms him yeah. and boom. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, that's um, and then, that's quite something. And, and then Dobby's death, isn't it? Which we've kind of dis- yeah. already discussed quite extensively um, as being a pretty hammy bad part of the film that is well not bad just you know not very emotionally resonant and well yeah and then of course we cut to Voldemort seeing Dumbledore in the tomb where which to me has a little bit too much of a shade of the prince kissing Snow White back to life for my <laughs> taste but oh. um <laughs> but it's a nice ending nonetheless um, Voldem- we haven't talked about Voldemort at all and I think Ralph Fiennes is a bit of a star of this film really he probably gets the most material in this film than he does of any of the other films really and Rafe that- Fiennes Rafe Fiennes sorry and that, that opening he's, he's alright that opening dinner sequence I think oh it's great in it? itself proves the worth of having two parts where you can have a big long scene like that where he like emasculates hmm. Lucius by taking his wand off him where he snaps it feeds Charity Burbage to Nagini and he's just got nice of lo- loads of nice little lines like uh, you know, as much as I admire your bloodlust Bellatrix like he's just got these lovely little lines I what think I, he's great you know what I do like about Voldemort a good character trait he has is that he is not materialistic and doesn't value material possessions which you can tell because as soon as he gets uh, Malfoy's wand he snaps off the really gaudy handle that's disgusting <laughs> And, <laughs> and just keeps a wand. And he throws it on the desk with disgust, like, what the fuck are you doing with this, you motherfucker? It looks stupid. You don't need that. And that's, you know, that's one of the nicer traits about, you know, someone who is essentially a Nazi in the Harry Potter universe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you've also got the, um, uphill! What have I told you about keeping your guests quiet? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a shame they wussed out of Wormtail's death. That, I mean, that is one of the darkest moments of all the, of all the books. And Isn't the, he made now. to kill himself yeah he 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 has a he basically gets into a scuffle in the cellar in Malfoy Manor with Harry and for a he takes a moment's hesitation before killing Harry like he pauses for just a second and his silver hand detects it and strangles him to death oh my god yeah Yeah, okay I can see why they cut that I can see why they cut that because it's really dark but, but it, then it means that in the really films, in, in the films, it means that Wormtail just disappears. He's never seen again after being yeah, himself. he's just stunned Which, and then. Well, yeah. it leaves you with the nice idea that maybe Dobby killed him with that spell. Maybe Dobby might have actually <laughs> met. Maybe Dobby did an Avada Kedavra on him. Or maybe he ran away. Maybe yeah. Maybe just maybe just turned into a rat and was just like he just noped the noped the hell out of the Battle of Hogwarts and just lived a happy life. And as all a rat. that was left of him was a thumb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the way that they stage it it's kind of like it's something to make really small kids laugh the way that he just kind of goes 
Yeah, I don't really like that, to be honest. It's a bit too slapstick for me, that. Yeah, Yeah, very, very slapstick. But, yeah, no, um, there's one little thing that I just want to mention as, like, a teeny little criticism before the end. Andy, you might be able to help me out on this. Okay. What is the plan behind Voldemort sending Nagini, dressed up as Bethilda Bagshot, to Godric's Hollow to tempt Harry to get... What's the the plan? What's the grand plan? It's just a booby trap. It's just... Before they go to Godric's Hollow, the reason Hermione is uncertain about going there is she says that that's somewhere Voldemort will expect you to maybe visit. Like that's going to be on the watch list. Um, yeah. So I think the idea is that Voldemort does suspect that he might visit Godric's Hollow and has put a bit of a booby trap there to 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 capture Harry or Into kill Harry. An old woman that's full of snakes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can't talk here. Too many snakes. Yeah. Um, he's put a bit of a booby trap there in Nagini. That's that's as much as I understand it. Which okay. it's, the thing is, that's kind of why I don't like the Godric's Hollow sequence. I think the whole thing is a bit forced. They have to have this whole dialogue scene beforehand where Harry explains why he wants to go there. Which you know, if the plot was flowing naturally, you shouldn't have to have that kind of a scene. You should just be able to cut to it. He explains why he wants to go there, and then they get there, and it's a bit of a wild goose chase. You mm. get this, you get this mediocre action sequence with the snake. Nothing really comes of it. It's I don't really see the point of the Godric's Hollow sequence, to be honest. Yeah, and uh, it, it's basically just there to break Harry's wand. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah, and you yeah. could why why not do that? You know, in the you ministry. Know. Why, why not, not have Hermione put it in a back pocket and sit on it? Well, yeah. Or wh- <laughs> why not? Well, why not do that in the ministry? Or um, why not do it anywhere? Yeah. And the thing <coughs> is, like, I'm a big fan of the series, but we got to Godric's Hollow, and I turned to Andy and said, "Why are they in Godric's Hollow again? What reason are they here? What are they doing? What does this achieve?" and it doesn't achieve anything other than Harry's wand breaking and they meet a snake. I think it's but just like, it's say... a sort of gen- there's a sort of general air around the place, isn't there, of like, well, Dumbledore lives there, my parents live there, Bethilda Bagshot's there. Seems like a place where we might get some info. But, yeah, it's a bit forced, that sequence, really. I think they just wanted an excuse to send Harry to see his parents' graves. I think that's what it's about, really. And I think it's a really beautiful sequence up to the point where they meet Bethilda. Like the like you don't think it's beautiful before, when a snake comes out in the mouth. church. <laughs> what was that? Sorry, you don't think it's beautiful when a snake comes out of her mouth? <laughs> um, oh yeah, totally. Uh, reminds me so much of Alien, which is you know one of the most glamorous films I've ever seen. But um, no, um, like this it, film, it's got John Hurt in it. Yeah. Uh, yes, it does. Um, but no, I love the singing in the church, the snow. I mean, I, I'm just so weak for Harry Potter Christmas sequences, man. Like, there's just, there's just. So, I mean, as soon as um, Hagrid is uh, dragging that big tree through the snow in Philosopher's Stone, I'm like, right, fine, fair enough. I'm gonna love Christmas sequences in Harry Potter films from <laughs> now on. Imagine if when they got to Godric's Hollow and it's snowing, you hear the music But no, I love the the scene at the grave. I love the kind of the way that it adds to the mystery of the Deathly Hallows with that symbol appearing on the grave. Merry Christmas, Hermione. The voices in the church, the realization that it's Christmas Day and they don't even know like it kind of ticks over. The way it kind of ticks over to midnight and yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a nice sequence. I just think, at a but point where at a point where the film is dragging, it doesn't help that you've got something that's sort of plotless happening there. Um, it just mm. it just needs tightening up that part of the film, and I think Godric's Hollow to me is the most obvious area where it needs tightening up. Mm. So. Yeah, I suppose it kind of also it kind of contributes to this kind of thing that I'm getting out of the film, where it feels like Harry is spending quite a lot of the film 
away from Hogwarts trying to get in touch with himself. And I feel like getting back to I think he did that he at the born... beginning of Prisoner of Azkaban. Am I right? Anyway. Am I right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is nice about this film... Is, Maxima! ...is that I don't feel the fact that Hogwarts isn't there. It's such no. a big presence in the rest of the films. And in this one, it doesn't matter so much. because. Well, you, you asked me this. You said, like, when's Hogwarts in it or something? Like, I thought there was a brief shot of it. I didn't realise there is literally no Hogwarts in this whatsoever. Yeah. No, there were just mentions on the radio the about train. the Death Eaters being in charge. Yeah, and... there's the train where Cormac McLaggen gets that fantastic, my father will hear about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, that's man. it. All you get is the train. Yeah. But um, I'm, I'm ready to, uh, to grade. Okay, cool. Uh, oh, um, God, this is hard. Yeah. I'm not going first. This is quite a tough one. Okay, I'll go first. Um, this film was like, well, to be fair, talking about it more has led me to appreciate it more. Um, and to be fair, I, I never disliked this film. I just didn't think it was, you know, within the top couple of Harry Potter films. Um, might be my third favourite, might be my fourth favourite. I, I, I'm not sure. It, it's, a, it's a good film. It, it, it's good. It just gets, it gets a bit boring. And maybe it was just the context of watching it last night. Um, but I just find myself getting really bored when the camping started and um, when the actors aren't surrounded by the supporting cast. Do appreciate the directions a lot better in this film. Do appreciate it at a slower, deliberate pace, particularly in the first half of the film, to make the characters more interesting. Um, I, I appreciate the witty script, which is quite good. Um, I like that it very closely follows the formula of the book. Um, I think a lot of the problems of this film are, oh, and I, oh, also I like the bleak feeling that re- reverbs all the way through the film, even if it does get a little bit too bleak um, at parts and relies on that a little bit too heavily. Um, but I think the inherent problem of this film is the problem of it being a film, um, like a part one of a two-part film, because, you know... I mean, I'm glad that it's in two parts, but they should have done a lot more to mitigate the fact that it's in two parts rather than just create this artificial ending that's not really much of an ending. It just sort of happens and fizzles out and that's it. Um, And also um, change the structural properties of the film and the plot somewhat to make it more interesting throughout the film rather than just have it be a sliding scale of badness. Like the characters doing being in a bad situation, getting worse and worse and worse and worse until the end of the film. Um, There needs to be... If you were going to decide to take a three-arc book um, and split it across two films, you need to figure out a way to do three acts in each film, at least do it in a way that is um, more interesting and makes the film more watchable. Not that the film isn't watchable, I just don't think it's the best Harry Potter film or the most interesting one. Um, So I'm feeling... I'm going back and forth on this and whether I like it or not, so I'll give it a six and a half. Okay. Um, Andy, if you had time to think. Yeah. I have many of the same feelings about this as Jake. Um, I I just... As as we probably know, I tend to be a bit more generous in my scoring than Jake does. Um, I only really have the one sort of fundamental problem with the film, which is that general sagginess in the second half that it just I, th- I think it, it gets a bit lost in its own two part structure becomes a bit of a snooze fest yeah I, I think I think that's a problem it doesn't quite manage to conquer but I'm happy to sort of give it 
sort of benefit of the doubt for two reasons, which is one, that's a problem it inherits from the book to some extent. It is laggy in the book as well. And also, it is the very first attempt that I can think of of a film doing a two-part finale like this. And I think it does a very decent job at it. I think it does set them all very, very well. Uh, and for what, like, as again, the first half of the film is, you know, getting on possibly nine and a half, ten out of ten for me, the first half of the film. I really, really enjoyed the first half of it. Um, I, I think it just sort of falls apart slightly. But it's really well directed. It's got a lovely score. Um, it's very well made. The acting's a mixed bag. Uh, great from Emma Watson, not so great from Daniel Radcliffe or Rupert Grint, I don't think. Uh, some sort of... Yeah, a mixed I find Emma Watson can be a bit wooden in this as well. To be fair, I think she's pretty good in this. Um, but overall, it's 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 good. It's it's and it's it leaves me really wanting to watch. We we always want to watch Deathly Hallows Part Two when we watch this, me and Jake. So I think that speaks volumes for the fact that it's successful at what it wants to do. So I'm gonna give it a seven point five. Cool, excellent. Um, I am gonna go slightly further above that. Um, I'm just eight point zero. I'm just okay. an eight. On this, um, I think that, yeah, it is still my second favourite. Um, this rewatch has confirmed that, I think, at least until I go through another rewatch in however many uh, months, years' time. Um, I think that breaking the formula is really necessary. I think it adds a lot to the film. Um, I think that there are a couple of points where it sags slightly, uh, mainly after they meet Bethilda. Um, like I say, not totally happy with the way that they deal with Dobby's death or anything like that, but I think that this has enough of a balance between um, character focus and also keeping the plot moving. Um, Because, you know, like I was saying, that the Goblet of Fire and the Order of the Phoenix kind of just end in the same place and then the Half-Blood Prince sort of ends only a little bit further on in terms of, like, the grander scheme of things, whereas this is, like, way further on. And um, we've got some actual stakes now. It does feel um, like we end this film like in such a far place from where it started, and I really yeah. do like that about it. Yeah. And um, so yeah, just an eight, an eight. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um. So, oh my God! Next time, we'll be it's finale back time to do Deathly Hallows Part Two. Nor will be uh, back for that one. Yeah. It's uh, our we'll series all... three finale, folks. Woo. Yeah. And I think we'll, instead of doing it remotely, we'll get together for that one. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll do it like we used to do it, where it's like Damn film it. and we'll do it live. podcast. We'll do it live. Yeah, we'll do it live, exactly. We'll do film and podcast in the in the same same day. It's a, in the same it's day. terrible strain on the podcaster's throat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, so we'll see you for Deathly Hallows Part 2. What do we think is going to happen? Do we think Voldemort's going to win? Oh, yeah, I think. Oh, will. yeah, definitely. I think this is all going to be about the triumph of... Um, Creature. I think Creature's going to come out on top here. Oh, see, I thought that what was going to happen is part way through the film, the scripts will flip, and it turns out the Chosen One is actually Blaze Amini. Well, we all know that the real Chosen One is Anakin Skywalker, and I'm finding it quite hard to square with the continuity of these films. That's a writing error, everyone. The Chosen One is Anakin Skywalker. Let's hope that Harry Potter has a high ground. (laughs) (laughs) He has the moral high ground, that's for sure. Anyway... But yeah, no, we will um, we'll see you for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 when this saga concludes. Ooh. See you then. Knox. Mm.